Let's go to the Lord in prayer. By the way, in 1 Timothy, we read that we are to... Um, he, Paul commands and encourages Timothy, give yourself over to reading, exhortation, and doctrine. And uh, that was a common practice. It's easy to remember. That's red, reading, exhortation, doctrine, R-E-D. For which... Uh, it happened in the synagogue. You would read the scripture. And one of the things that would be that would happen is that men would be challenged to encourage each other to take some warning or exhortation from that text. And then they would pray for each other. That was one of the reasons why Paul was having a bit of a problem with some of the gals who weren't next to their husbands, but rather in another portion of the synagogue, kind of doing that. You hear that, Morty? You hear that? That was for you. Morty, Morty. You know, that kind of thing. And so... Uh, anyways, the reason I say that is I just want to encourage us as we take time, well, I want to do that, you know, and so uh, as you're reading together, let there be something that stands out in scripture that just be like, I've just been challenged. This would be a really cool thing to be challenged to do, because I'll be honest, when I first studying, started studying scripture, I didn't start studying it like we would say, sort of classically study. It wasn't like I read it and went, all right, let's figure out how things are put together and let's figure out what themes are and how these things. I mean, those things just sort of, to be honest, were a byproduct of my time. I just opened up scripture and I just had a pad and pencil and I wasn't writing down, oh, this is a cool note or this is a really cool point or whatever. I was just writing down, to be honest, things in my life that didn't add up. I'd read it and I was going, I would just go, wow, I should be doing this and I'm not. Or, well, I am doing this and clearly I shouldn't. And I would write those things down because I wanted to pray for those things. And primarily because what I really wanted was I wanted my life to correlate with Scripture. And so it wasn't like, I mean, if you would have read it, all, you, you, you probably would have ran away screaming. Because, I mean, most of it was just, wow, this guy's really messed up. But the, my heart in that was to basically just to do reading an exhortation. I was like, God, I want my life to line up with this book. Because this book is, the, in essence, the story of your heart, and I want to line up with it. And the only reason I say that is, is that as, as we continue on week by week, you know, and I know it becomes sort of a practice now. I, by the way, I'm, as a pastor, I am so encouraged and blessed by watching you read at your tables and watching you pray with each other. It's just such an encouraging thing. But imagine, that'd be like, you know, what you're doing is exactly what you're being challenged to do in Scripture, to read. And then the other thing was just exhortation, to take that thing. And it isn't like you use that moment to go, all right, hey, everybody, here's these things that I think, Bruno, you should change, and Shamar, you should change. But it's, you know, it's like, hey, the Lord's just showing me this is something that should, you know. And sometimes, by the way, that exhortation can just be, hey, I'm actually doing this in my life, and it's, it's in Scripture. How cool is that? You know, and by the way, because it isn't just God going, hey, bonehead, you're not getting it. But sometimes he's like, hey, you got this right. Nice job. And, and it tells us in Romans that the Gentiles often do what is written in the law, even though they hadn't even read the law, because God wrote the law in their hearts. You ever find yourself doing something and then read it in Scripture and go, oh, check it out. I'm doing something biblical. Well, it's nice to be encouraged, too. And that's part of that exhortation. So anyways, I just want to encourage you with that. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. And we're going to take some time and we're going through, obviously it's a, it's a pretty deep chapter. There's an awful lot going on and there's an awful lot of verses. But I have to be honest, it's my favorite chapter of Solomon. Of all the things that Solomon has the opportunity to do, I really, and this is just my opinion, but I, I just feel like this is, this is the moment. And you know, you ever have those moments where, you know, you feel like, and it's a feeling, 
but you know, kind of feel like the love is kind of cooling for the moment or God, you, your heart's not skipping a beat at the name of Jesus and you know it should and you're just going, what in the world's going on in my life? And you refer back to the moments when you're like, okay, that was, that was it. That was the apex of it being right. Well, I really feel like this is it for Solomon. It isn't building the temple. It's actually this day of dedication. And, 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 and really, that's what I want to challenge us in is what if this was our life? What What's happening in this chapter, specifically as pertain to ourselves being that temple? So let's pray. Lord, I want to thank you for your word. Uh, no doubt, 66 verses, that's a lot to look at, but we don't want to be overwhelmed with that many verses. We really want our hearts and our minds to be in the right place and our spirits to be in the right place so that our attitudes in our hearts would be right and that we would be like, yes, God, make that my life. And, and Lord, I do pray that, that we could demonstrate all the things we need to learn in this chapter, that we would learn them and, and take that to heart and see uh, and cry out to you and see you change what needs to be changed. So, Lord, I want to thank you. And I want to thank you, Lord, that you've put your word so plainly before us so that we can read it and get it and understand it and go, wow, okay, I, I, I can see how that plays out. And So help us, Lord. Help us to to get it, captivate us in your word. May we have fun with every breath we take in here. And, and Lord, may we be just drawn in and edified and enriched and equipped for your good work now, please. So have your way. We commit this time to you, Lord. Jesus, in your name. Amen. Would say tonight is any, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. Search the scriptures. 1 Corinthians 3.16, easy to remember, it's a 3.16, tells us, do you not know that you're the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? Three chapters later in 6.19, it says, do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, which is in you, or who is in you, whom you have from God, you are not your own. Uh, in actually three verses, or, I'm sorry, the next book, 2 Corinthians 6.16, says what agreement does, he's speaking about being not, un, not being uh, unequally yoked. And he says, what agreement has the temple of God with idols? Because you're the temple of the living God. As God said, I will dwell with them and walk among them. I will be their God and they'll be my people. I want, just, I want us to recognize that if you've said yes to Jesus Christ, if you haven't, you'll have that opportunity. But the simple of it is, Jesus died for you on the cross to pay for your sins. He was buried and rose again on the third day, just as scripture promised, seen by a whole lot of people. And he gives you the choice. Do you, will you let him be the Savior and Lord of your life? He's the only one who did that for you. He's the only one who needs to. He's the only one qualified to, and he did it. And he wants to be your Lord and Savior and wants a relationship with you. And the moment you say yes to that, your body becomes a temple of the living God. Solomon, in a very literal way, is going to build a temple in front of us. In 1 Kings 8, 6 and 7, actually, he's built the temple. We have a lot of diagrams, and it's fairly uh, specific in regards to how tall and wide and long things are. Holy of Holies is basically twice the size of the one in the tabernacle, I'll give you an idea. And, and so we kind of get, a, in essence, a walk around the whole property. And what we have now is that the, now that the temple has been finished, Solomon wants to dedicate it. He wants to have this experience with the people. It's in essence a grand opening. 
Solomon reigns, in essence, from roughly 971 to 931 B.C., 40 years. The third year of his, of his reign was when he sort of started uh, this thing, 966 B.C., and it tells us, by the way, then First uh, Kings 6.38, that in the 11th month of the Bull, which is the 8th month, this house was finished uh, in all of its details. Uh, according to the plans, it was seven years in the making, so the temple was finished, uh, and in the 11th year, in the 8th month. Now, it was finished in the 8th month. Now, it's important to note, Jewish months are different than our months. Uh, so when you, re- for instance, read about how the Ark of God rested in the seventh month on, this, on the 17th day, that doesn't just mean that it landed on July 17th, because it's different months. The months actually start in March, basically March, April. Uh, and so what that does, and the only reason I'm even bringing this up, I mean, basically, the temple is, dedic- is, is completed, if you will, in 959 B.C. Uh, October, November is basically how that plays out. Uh, now, the reason I say that is what we're going to read is that he does this in the seventh month. The eighth month was when it was finished, and the seventh month he dedicates it. So we really only have two answers to that. One is he dedicated it before it was finished. That's rather unlikely. Or it took some time in between the time the temple was finished and the time he actually dedicated the temple. Now, in between that time, God did tell us that Solomon also built other buildings, including his own house. And I wonder if that did happen that way. We don't actually have one, uh, the year that this was dedicated, but what if that were the case? It's the way it's written in our text, uh, is the idea that Solomon may have finished the uh, temple. It took seven years, but it took 13 to build his own house. And maybe Solomon built the temple. He built his own house in the house of his wife, and uh, that was sort of the Egyptian princess and all of that. And then once he finished all that, he got to this big celebration. I really don't know. But I do know this, that Solomon has an amazing day here where he's doing it right. So regardless of all of that, it says in chapter 8, verse 1, Solomon assembled the elders of Israel and all the heads of the tribes and the chief fathers of the children of Israel to King Solomon in Jerusalem, that they might bring up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord from the city of David, which is Zion. Now, if I could give you an image in your head Jerusalem, in its simplest sense, in its entirety, basically is shaped like an old painter's paintbrush. You know, the kind that's kind of wide and square on the top and then has a handle? So there's the handle in the south, and then the rest of it's relatively square. That square area is what we would know today as Jerusalem proper. That handle is the south side of Jerusalem, and that would be known as the city of David. It's where David lived. If you remember, David, during his own time, had the, the Ark of the Covenant moved and put into a tabernacle, if you will, that David had established, basically in his front yard is kind of how it seems. He wanted it near. David wanted it near him. David, I guarantee, if he had the opportunity, would have gladly traded in his calling as a king to be a priest. That's what David really wanted, was just to hang out with God forever. And I think that was one of the reasons that it made him such a fantastic priest. I'm sorry, a fantastic king in a lot of ways. Now, with that in mind, if you will, then they've called for the ark to be moved from the handle of the paintbrush into the, into the paintbrush proper. Is kind of the idea here. Verse 2 says, Therefore all the men of Israel assembled with King Solomon at the feast of the month of Elthanim. Try that word, Elthanim. Yeah, it wasn't bad. Which is in the seventh month. 
Now, Athanim, by the way, means enduring. It is the seventh month. The first month is the beginning. Actually, the months begin with a harvest is kind of the idea. So Passover, there are three feasts required of a Jewish person each year if you're able-bodied in a man. The first of those is Passover. That is on the 14th of uh, of the first month. Nassim is actually how it's said in the Hebrew. And that's, again, March, April. It coincides a lot with our Easter in a lot of ways. You know how it's never on the same day, so to speak. It's a sort of a lunar calendar versus just something you find on your calendar. Then you count 70 days from its Sabbath. And, I'm sorry, you count 50 days from its Sabbath, and you have your second of those two feasts. And that's the Feast of Pentecost or of Shavuot. Penta, like 50, 50 days from the Sabbath. It's kind of the idea. Now, Passover was the feast, if you will, of the slaughtering of the Lamb of God, the death of the firstborn to bring freedom to the people. Very important. The second one, then 50 days later, if you will, uh, is the feast of the first great harvest, Pentecost, Shavuot. Then you go to the end of the time of the harvest, which is then in the seventh month. That's in essence September, October. And that is the feast of Sukkot or Tabernacles. It is the feast of the last great harvest. And God said, now understand, I don't want you to just over to my houses for a barbecue three times a year, though that's nice in and of itself. He says, these are everlasting testimonies. In other words, these feasts tell us about so much more than just, well, we're coming out, it's October, November, or September, October, we should go in and have a camp out with God. And it's important to note that God actually, on that Passover, the celebration of the slaughtering of the Lamb of God, the death of the firstborn son, Jesus dies to set the captive free. That makes perfect sense. It it is something that is more than just you show up and you do it. God said, this is going to impact eternity. And there it is. He has given us testimony that this is something for eternity we'll remember. On the second of those events, the celebration of the first great harvest, the church is born. That's Acts chapter 2, Pentecost. And during that time, Peter stands up and gives a message, and 3,000 people give their life to Jesus Christ on that day. And might I say, it was the feast of the first great harvest, and on that day, there was the first great harvest of souls. Now, what about the last one? the one of Sukkot, of tabernacles. Well, it is considered to be the happiest of all of the feasts, even though the first one would be amazing, of course, because you're being delivered out of bondage, out of slavery. The second, because there is now the beginning of a bountiful harvest. But the third one, the work is done. The harvest is over. You've collected everything, and now you have your fruit to show for you. And with that, The reason it's called tabernacles is because you then built tabernacles around your harvest things to guard it so that nobody took it from you. Now, if you think about it, your harvest is a lot of seed often. Wheat's a classic example of that. You eat the kernel, but it's also seeds. The reason I say that is, is that when you look at what you have to show for yourself, it actually, in essence, knows this is what's going to feed my family through the winter months, but it also, this is what I have to invest in next year for the next year's harvest. So there is that before you. In other words, you are basically sitting on all of your life savings is kind of the idea. And, and, and might I just say this, well, your whole life is amounted to what you're looking at in front of you. That's kind of the way it looks. Might I suggest to you, by the way, it is also the time, they say it's the best time to get married. Do you know Why? 
because everybody's done with their work. They've got the day off, the week off. And so that's a great time. It's a time of feasting, a type of celebration. They're completely stoked. And of course, that's because they have all of this before them so they can see how God has provided for that. And then they'd be able to rest through a time and they basically tuck themselves away then. The groom and his bride tuck themselves away for the time of the tribulation of the winter. That time they call a time of tribulation or a time of rough times. It's In other words, it's the harsher months. Now, might I suggest to you Each one of those has an eternal testimony. The first of them, the the death of the firstborn son, the death of the Lamb of God to deliver people out of the bondage, Jesus showed us that at the cross when he died during that feast. The second, the feast of the first great harvest, well, that was the birth of the church and the beginning of the great harvest of souls in Acts chapter 2. Well, what about Sukkot? Might I suggest to you, it just hasn't happened yet. We still look forward to that last great harvest. And with that, the groom comes, gets his bride, tucks her away. Then comes a time, oh, the rougher months, if you will, the time of tribulation. It's a very encouraging thought. Now, the reason I say that is, is that this is the last of those feasts. This particular time is a time when all the work is done. And as all the work is done, he's gathered all the people to have this great feast during the month that they had called Etanim. And Etanim, by the way, means enduring. And the reason is, is now it's endured. The creeks that could dry up have endured the summer months. And there's something that speaks of God's provision and the fact that we still have running water even after those dry months. And that's a great testimony of God's grace as you sit on your big pile of what God has done for you throughout the course of the harvest. Now, yep, that's not distracting at all. Cats fighting over my head. So, with that in mind, it says that he's gathered the leaders and the people together. And he wants the ark brought in. Because let's face it, it's kind of the same thing. The ark, I mean, the temple without the ark is like your phone without a SIM card and a battery. I mean, you still have a phone, but it's really not doing anything. Now, consider this. The temple without the ark was the temple without God's presence. And with it, it's a box. It still exists. It's still tangible. But it doesn't really serve a great purpose. It's just a nice building. And we know that because we see a lot of nice buildings that were once churches that are now pubs and comedy clubs and flats. And we look at it and the building sometimes is still relatively nice on the outside, but it doesn't serve the same purpose. And for me, that bothers me because I realized the people who had those buildings made had a specific design in mind. And it was with the idea that God would be glorified there. Not that people get wasted. Well, with that in mind, I'd like you to consider as you're the temple of the living God, without the presence of God in your life, you still take up space, you're still breathing, you're still animated, you're still doing stuff. But you're really not serving your purpose. You were not created for that. You were created for so much more. And just existing when God has you thriving on his agenda is kind of a waste of life. So Solomon has gathered the people together because he knows the temple is really nothing without God's presence. And it says in verse 3 that the elders of, the, of Israel and the priests took up the ark and they brought up the ark of the Lord, the tabernacle of meaning, the holy furnishings that were in the tabernacle. 
The priests and the Levites brought them up. That's required according to Numbers 4. Also King Solomon and all the congregation of Israel were assembled with him, were with him before the ark, sacrificing sheep and oxen that could not be counted or numbered in multitude. Now, there are specific items that were in the, the tabernacle. Each were a testimony, and they were only to be carried by priests, and a specific group of them called the Kohanites. To this day, by the way, for what it's worth, if you have the, the name Kohen, I mean, those days it's Kohatite, now it's Kohenite. If you have the name Kohen, you could actually, and you, you can move to Israel, if you were born with that name and it's legitimate, and you could actually apply to become a priest for the future temple. I kid you not. Because they attribute that to the Kohathites all the way back in Numbers. Now, consider this. And it's a side note, but it's a very important one. Somebody's going to have to carry the things. But everyone else is going to carry them wrong. God has a specific way for them to be carried by a specific group of people to keep them clean and to keep them set apart. The table of showbread, that which would have been on the right as you're staring, looking at the Holy of Holies, that testifies of God's provision. To your left, the menorah, the only light in the tabernacle itself. There will be ten of, ten of these with beveled windows as well. So it's different in the, taber, in, the, in the temple, but in the tabernacle it was just this. This was your only light. This is what guided you to your left. And before you, the golden altar of incense, testifying of your prayers before God and how God loves them. Now, if you don't carry those things, if a priest doesn't carry those things, they will be redefined and carried elsewhere. And they were all to testify of the name of the living God. The reason I say that is, is that according to Romans 1, I'm sorry, Revelation 1, 6, Revelation 5, 10, and even Revelation 20, verse 6, it makes clear we are now the priests of the living God. And if we're the priests of the living God and we don't carry those things, the testimony of God's provision, the unsaved world will. And they, have a, they do a fantastic job of perverting the truth. If we don't carry the menorah, the testifying that God is our guide and our only light and direction, then the world will. And they have a tremendous ability to pervert what that would mean. If we don't show what it really means to pray and what God, how God entertains our prayers, and it's not that our prayers move the hand of God, but rather that our prayers put us in a position to receive what's in his hand. Well, then if we don't do that, then the world will do that. And if we don't proclaim the name of Jesus, what we're learning, and it's clear, is the world will, and they do not mean the same thing. And when Solomon is having them brought up, they're being brought up the right way. That's the point. Verse 6. Then the priests... In the Ark of the Covenant, I'm sorry, brought in the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord to its place. They brought it in. Into the inner sanctuary of the temple, to the most holy place, the Holy of Holies, under the wings of the cherubim. For the cherubim spread their two wings over the place of the Ark, and the cherubim overshadowed the Ark and its poles, and the poles extended so that the ends of the poles could be seen from the holy place in front of the inner sanctuary, but they could not be seen from outside. They're there to this day. What that means is, if you were in the, ho the holy place, the place where these three items were, of these pieces of furniture, but not in the holy of holies where only the ark was, how did you know the ark was in there? You could see the poles. And you could be reminded that there is a veil between us and God. But that same God 
the same, I remind you, those poles testified that that ark was to go mobile. That was the reason those poles were there, so that the priest could carry that thing from place to place when it was in the tabernacle. And you could see God going, I am coming out. I am coming out. This thing's going mobile again. So should it surprise us at Jesus' death and resurrection, at his death, that the veil of the temple was torn in two? It wasn't to let man in. It was to show you God was coming out. That's the point. Now, with that in mind, and by the way, again, remember the priest would go into the holy place, not the holy of holies, but the holy priest to, put, to pray, like John the Baptist's dad, Zechariah. If you remember, that's what he was doing when he was in there. Nothing was in the ark except the two tablets of stone which Moses put there in Horeb. Horeb is Mount Sinai, where he got the Ten Commandments. When the Lord made the covenant with the children of Israel, when they came out of the land of Egypt. Interesting, because in Hebrews 9, 4, it tells us that there were three other items. A golden pot of manna, Aaron's rod that had budded, and the tablets. Where are those things? We don't know. But at this particular moment... That's the only thing in there is the broken law. And I don't know if you considered the fact what the ark is, is a box that holds the broken law covered in blood. And that place is called the mercy seat. Aren't you thankful it's not called the judgment seat, but the mercy seat? Because the law is already broken. But God in his great grace has poured forth his own blood in sacrifice. And in doing that, he can offer mercy. So... It came to pass when the priests came out of the holy place that the cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priests could not continue ministering because of the cloud for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. And we're familiar with the fact that this is common. Uh, Exodus 13 told us that God led by a pillar of cloud by day and fire by night. And then by the next chapter, it separated Israel from Egypt when Egypt was trying to attack them. It rested on Mount Sinai, Sinai by chapter 24. And then from that point on, what you start to see is every time when the tabernacle was erected, when Moses set a tabernacle on the outside prior to that in Exodus 33, God descended in such a way and spoke to Moses like a man speaks to his friend. It tells us in Exodus 40, when the tabernacle was to be erected, that the glory of the Lord filled that tabernacle. And the same thing happened. People couldn't do their work afterwards. Leviticus 16, God said that he would appear in verse 2 in a cloud above the mercy seat. Interesting. It's the same thing, by the way, in Numbers 9.15. Might I say it this way? When God's glory fills the house, you really can't do any work. It's only time to rest and bask in his presence. Wouldn't that be great if God did that tonight? We're not just talking about the room would be filled with fog, but that the clarity of God's presence would be so evident that all we could do is just rest and go, God, you're good and your mercy endures forever. So here's the temples there, the ark's being brought in, and God shows that he endorses this whole act as he fills the place with his glory. And Solomon can't help but praise God for it. So Solomon speaks in verse 12. The Lord said he would dwell in a dark cloud. He said that again in Leviticus 16 too. I have surely built you an exalted house, a place for you to dwell in forever. Then the king turned around and he blessed the whole assembly of Israel while the assembly of Israel was standing. And he said, blessed be the Lord God of Israel who spoke by his mouth to my father, David, and with his hand was as with his hand has fulfilled it saying, since the day that I brought my people Israel out of Egypt, I have chosen no city from any tribe of Israel in which to build a house 
that my name might be there, but I chose David to be over my people Israel. Now it was in my heart of my father David to build a temple for the name, notice it's for the name, for the name of the Lord, God of Israel. But the Lord said to my father, where is it was in your heart to build a temple for my name? You did well that it was in your heart. Nevertheless, you shall not build the temple. But your son, who came from your body, she shall build a temple for my name. So the Lord has fulfilled his word, which he spoke. Now, four different times God says, you recognize this building's to be built for my name. You need to know when that name is said, what that means. Let's face it, when you hear the name Jesus Christ out there, anywhere outside this room, do you assume that it's somebody who knows him personally? Isn't it crazy that more unbelievers use the name of Jesus than believers? That makes no sense to me. It's like unbelievers are not afraid to say his name. Believers are. How does that work? Well, he goes, look at it. I built this place. You told me to build it for your name. Well, my dad wanted to build it for your name. You said you can't build it for my name. Your son will build it for my name. And he goes, and I've built it for his name. So the Lord has fulfilled his word, which he spoke. I have filled the position of my father, David, and sit on the throne of Israel as the Lord had promised. And I've built a temple for the name of the Lord God of Israel. And I've made a place for the ark in which is the covenant of the Lord, which he made with our fathers when he brought them out of the land of Egypt. So Solomon sees the cloud. He knows that that's God fulfilling his promise, his approval. And he said, God would say, dwelt in a cloud. There's the cloud. Dad wanted to build this, but God told him he couldn't. And he commended him for it. But he said, your son would build it instead. I'm the son. It's been built. Bada boom, bada bing. So Solomon begins to pray. Verse 22, Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord. That's the place of sacrifice. In the presence of the whole assembly of Israel, and he spread out his hands towards heaven. Now look at verse 22. Is Solomon sitting, kneeling, or standing? Standing. That's what it says. He stood before the altar of the Lord with his hands up. So at this moment, Solomon is praying, and he's just doing this. At a moment like this. He is so into what he's doing at this moment. There's no like him curling up in a ball. He is excited about what the Lord is doing. And he said, Lord God of Israel, there's no God in heaven above or on earth below like you who keep your covenant and mercy with your servants with so who walk before you with all their hearts. You've kept what you promised your servant David, my father. You have both spoken with your mouth and fulfilled it with your hand as it is this day. Therefore, Lord God of Israel, now keep what you promised your servant David, my father, saying, you shall not fail to have a man sit before me on the throne of Israel, if only your sons take heed to their way, that they walk before me as you have walked before me. And now I pray, O God of Israel, let your word come true, which you have spoken to your servant David, my father. What does he call God here three different times in this small prayer so far? Excellent. Lord God, or O God of Israel. Lord God of Israel, you're holy, unique, because you keep your covenant. You keep your mercy for your servants, and you keep your promises. That makes you different from all the other gods that people worship. And like the one you promised to my dad, when you promised him that if his sons obeyed you, that they'd always rule. Well, you've kept that promise. Could you keep this one too? And I think it's interesting because God gave Adam authority 
And the issue was never about God taking the authority away. Adam gave it away when he was disobedient. Verse 27. But will God indeed dwell on earth? Behold, heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain you. How much less this temple that I have built. Can you imagine that God's bigger than the universe? I mean, can you imagine trying to explain that to anyone? Okay, I can't even wrap my head against this. Has anyone told you that the universe is expanding? Have you heard that? Brilliant scientists, and I'm saying brilliant in the sense that that's what they call themselves, um, are telling me that the universe is expanding. Okay, now let me ask you something. What's at the edge of the universe? Well, blank space is kind of what I'm getting. There's stars, there's dust and matter, and a lot of blank space. I mean, that's kind of what I get in the universe, blank space. So if it's expanding, what was there before it expanded? How is blank space getting bigger? It doesn't, I can't get my head wrapped around that. It's like, how big is the universe? Because what they don't want to tell you is it's infinite. They're, I can't seem to come to an end of it because you try to explain infinity to somebody who's trying to get scientific. Everything has to have a beginning and an end. There has to be limits to things and their brain explodes and they can't let that happen because then they're actually not the masters of their own universe. Because if it's infinite and they're finite, how could they rule the universe? How could their brain control all of that? So, they, you know, it's like, well, the universe is this big. Well, no, the universe is this big. And it's like, it's expanding. I don't get that. How about this one? When I went to school, the earth was 10 million years old. Now I think it's like 400 billion years old. Now, look at, I did not go to school that long ago. And so I start to... And I'm starting to wonder about this. And I'm thinking, is okay, maybe there's like dog years and there's like earth years, right? You know, like a dog is like every year is like seven years, you know? My dog's four. Do you realize he's in the prime of life at four, you know? It's like the earth, I don't know, it just keeps growing by billions of years. And I, it just blows my mind to think that. And the reason I say that is if we actually for just a moment took a look at the infinite matter of space and just the vacuous infinity that stands before us in every direction and we go God's bigger than infinity that just doesn't work in, except by faith because it's like this is the biggest thing I could come up with and God's like bigger and, you, and you, it's hard to wrap your head around that so when Solomon looks up and he's like the heaven of heavens can't contain you he's like if we could times this infinity, times it by another infinity, it's still smaller than you are. So if I'm looking at this infinite space, which we read, by the way, that God marked it with his, with his hand. He went like this and he, and he didn't just go, shaka bra. He looked and he went, okay, let's make the universe that. And I could just see God just for fun. He was like, I'll make it like that. Oh, it's expanding. Anyway, and it's like, I just think it's in, just crazy that you're looking at all that. And then he's looking at this, infinite space in front of me goes, so how in the world are you going to dwell in this little box I made? I mean, you are that huge. I can't shove you in this. And notice what he says in verse 27. I love that kind of, man, may God grant every one of us that kind of wonder. Because when we lose that wonder, I really believe we lose our impact on a world around us. They're going to call you an idiot. And in the beginning, you didn't care. You know why you didn't care? Because God was bigger than them too. 
And because you were loved by the one person who knew you, and they didn't know you, and they could call you when they wanted, and you could go, well, they don't know me. You know, and, but then I go, but God, you love me, and you know everything about me. And that's much better anyways. But somewhere down the line, you get excluded from enough parties you wouldn't want to go to anyways, and you start feeling like you have to bend something somewhere so that you could be liked by everybody. But man, what if God gave us that wonder back? When we went, wow, how cool is this? Heaven of heavens can't contain you. No, how much less this temple that I built. Hey, I tried to make it majestic. I tried to make it, I mean, you gave me blueprints, but I tried to make it as cool as I could. And yet in trying to make it as cool as I could, there's just no way I could do that. No matter what the building is, compare it to a thousand star sky above you and realize that every one of those could potentially have planets revolving around it. And here we are in our thing, our galaxy which is then rotating as a whole galaxy around other things that are other galaxies that make up a universe. And who knows what's beyond that? And yet in all of that, God can look in and see you and call you by name. And he looks and he's just like, I'm just kind of blown away at this. Hey, you know, he could have said, will you check out this building? Pretty awesome, isn't it? Frank Lloyd Wright, Christopher Wren, idiots, this is a real building. Check this thing out. Gold, look at it glisten. And it's covered in gold. Check out how this thing gleams, baby. On a sunny day, don't drive your chariot near here. You're going to be blinded. Man, this thing's awesome. But it doesn't matter what you can look at and go, wow, that's awesome. You look at God and you go, that's awful. How did we make awesome great and awful bad? Did you ever figure that one out? It's like, how could you have some awe and it's really, really cool, but then you're going to be full of it and now you're terrible? Because in the old King Jimmy, it tells us God is awful. And what that means is he's more than awesome. He's awesome to the infinity. He's like awesome to the infinity and beyond. That's the idea here. And Solomon looks at all of this. And he goes, you know, I look up and I see all of this and I can't help but think it's a little bit of his dad in him. Because it was his dad who said, when I consider the work of your fingers, not your hands and not all of the hard work, but he's looking up at the thousand stars that he can see at a moment as he's you know, watching the sheep and staring up into space, laying there and just going, wow, when I look at all of that, I think, you're just fingers made this. I consider the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars and the sun that you've made. You know what I think? Who in the world am I? I mean, I'm lower than the angels. And did you crown me with all this glory and honor? I mean, you know me by name. I'm smaller than the speck on a speck. And you call me by name. In London, we have tall buildings all around us. And as if we have tall buildings all around us, it's easy to forget how big the world is around us. 
And we get the clouds that cover often. So we don't see those thousands of stars. And we forget. We're so covered in things that, if anything, it's sort of like nature puts a lid on at best. I can hear the lapping of the river from my room. I keep my windows open at night. And it sounds like a dog lapping a bowl. And I realize that's the tide coming in. Because we live by a tidal river. A tidal river. You realize that? That at least according to the people in London, I haven't heard anyone outside of London say it, it is the cleanest river in all of Europe. Some of you think, I wonder what that says about the other rivers. You know. But it's, and you watch it, and one of the things it does is, is it kind of comes and goes as there's fish of all kinds now starting to swim in there. Apparently they found a porpoise not that far from where we live not that long ago. And a seal. Not just like the guy that's like, never gonna go survive. You know, but like, you know, he's just picking up Heidi Klum or whatever. But I mean, not actually like, you know, and and there's just a part of me that just thinks how cool is our God do you you get to see the sunsets that still kind of kind of funnel their way through those tall buildings in the evening at like 9.30 at night when the sun sets when was the last time you were in awe of that because see I, I need to find a new awe I mean, I woke. I used to wake up by the ocean. You can't see the end of it. That humbles you. And every day, you'd find new trash. You know, it's like things that sometimes were just sticks and driftwood and all that. But by the night, when this when the tide went out, it was gone. The sea just came in, took it, and it was like its own rubbish collector. You know, it just went off. And I would write song after song about that stuff. And the way that the sun would set on that infinite space. And how small I would feel. But now we live in a city. You know what happens when you live in a city? You don't want to feel small. I mean, you feel instead insignificant. They're very different things, aren't they? Insignificant there's so many people out there. And you're shoved onto the, the, a, a train along with a bunch of other people. And you're just trying not to let your body touch someone else's body when they're all shoved in like sardines and trying not to catch eye contact with people as they're trying not to catch eye contact with you. You're all trying to exist in your tiny little space so you can get back to your house and watch something or forget do something to make you forget that that just happened. And you know what happens? You get so used to it, like you blink and a month's gone by. And you're like, oh, and the only reason I know that is like, oh, didn't we just pay that bill? <laughs> oh, that was last month. And then it just accelerates. And then you kind of wake up and like one day and you'll stand before God. And you've forgotten completely this infinite majesty that God possesses. I'm like, oh, I forgot to look for you. I was too busy avoiding people and buildings and cabs, bikers.
Solomon in these first 27 verses has watched the ark being brought in. He's watched God bless the building he's made. And then he just freaks out. Wow, God, you are. You know what? You're the real deal. People chase after money. They chase after sex. They chase after fame. Those are not the real deal. None of those keep their promises. You do. From generation to generation, what you promised my dad, you did. Just like you said. I've had to bend it. I haven't had to twist it. I haven't said, well, if we just take this metaphorically, we could kind of make it fit. You said it plainly, and you did it plainly, and there you go. So that's the case. Because you have kept all the promises you've made in the past, and though the word he uses is more than he uses covenant, a covenant's different than a promise. A promise may concern services or an action, but a covenant demands relationship. And he says, because you've kept everything that you've covenanted prior, can't I look at the future with that same confidence? But you did say that there was a requirement, and that was obedience. If we were willing to obey you, you were willing to keep it. He goes, in other words, you've already set in motion all the blessing necessary. The only thing that's left is that I have to obey you. By the way, let me just remind you of this, because believe it or not, we're we're almost done, because 28 is a whole new concept, and I'd rather get it on it next week. When we think of obeying God, are you still at a place in your life where obeying God just simply means stop doing things? Because that's where we start, right? I mean, in the beginning, when we start walking with the Lord, we think obedience is just stop doing that, stop doing that, stop doing that. But somewhere as we grow in the Lord, we realize obedience is also start. Start doing that. Replace that with this. Do this now. For some of us, Stopping was actually, as much as we kind of enjoyed it, we knew that we were supposed to when it was right, so we did it. We, you know, we said, all right, Lord, I don't have the strength to do it, but you can do it. And then someone else is like, okay, now let's start using you. And you're like, whoa, 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 whoa. Can it just be good enough that I stop doing those other things? But Solomon needs to do a whole lot more than just not do bad. Solomon needs to be a good king. And I just want to warn you, as you transition, I mean, there will always be stops because we're riddled full of all kinds of stupid things to do that God's like, stop that. But he's inviting you on the greatest adventure of your life. The one who actually spoke eternity into existence, who flung the stars with his hand, that same God invites you on an adventure to follow him. What do you think he has in store for that? And Solomon's like, you know, the issue is not how cool this building is. It's how infinite you are. And clearly, this building can't contain you. So would you use this building instead as an earpiece to hear our prayers? Could this building just be the place you set your ear to so that if we cried out to you, you'd listen? Can I say this? You are the temple of the living God now, beloved. Can I say that his ear is always attentive to the cry of his saints? You say, can you make this thing now? A place where you just set your ear and hear my heart.
and hear my cries and hear my prayers, but also hear my praise and my adoration that sometimes doesn't even make it to my mouth because somehow it just seems to pour out of my eyes when I think of you in the middle of the night. So here's my prayer as we go to prayer. That tonight, God would reinstill that sense of wonder. That we wouldn't just sing, I stand in awe of you. Really would. Solomon standing, going, now I'm not telling you this is exercise, this is this, the position of a song, but it's like, imagine, Solomon just like, wow, God, wow. He's standing there and there's this building covered in a cloud now. And the priests are like, well, I can't see what in the world I'm doing anymore anyways. And I remind you, they're like cutting animals. So you really, you know, a guy with a knife like that, it's like, don't give a guy a machete and throw him in the fog. So, you know, you can imagine they're like, well, the only thing to do at this moment is rest. Could you imagine if we really were, were encased in the wonder of God, how much more we may find ourselves resting? Would you pray with me? God, you are too infinite for this box. But let it be a depot for your heart. Set your ear upon it and hear the cries. Lord, I confess to you that if I'm not consumed with this beautiful, majesty, glorious, wondrous God, majestic, glorious God, how would I expect people around me to be? Renew in us a state of wonder, that place where we're just breathless, waiting to exhale. Because outside of this little box of London, the little box of our lives, and the little box that takes us from one part of our life to another, beyond all of that is a God who is infinite times infinity. And I want to be moved by that. I want to be moved and alive with that so that when people talk to us, it's just not about us or the thing we're making of our life, but rather about a God who is so infinite that there's just something mind-melting about the concept that you would even give attention to this small little speck that bears my name. Put us in that place of wonder, I pray, for the rest of our life. And then make us contagious. God, we get so sucked into the temporal, and that'll never be majestic like this. Not like you. And we know that. Please, tonight, reignite us. And if tonight 
within the sound of this voice there's anyone who has yet to say yes to this gift of Jesus. This infinite times infinity God who cloaked himself in flesh and walked on earth and took all of our filth upon him and put it on his shoulders and died on a cross. And you recognize he's done all the work and he's asking for your response. He's asking for that yes. Pray this prayer with me. God, I am a sinner. I'm not standing on my own merit. Before you, I'm guilty. But you love me and want me anyways, knowing everything about me. And in that, you sent Jesus to die for me so that all my guilt could be punished. And that tonight, I could be set free. That even like the first of the three great feasts, I would see the Son surrendered, the Lamb slaughtered, so that I, a slave to my own sin, could go free. So I do believe Jesus died for me, was buried and rose again, just like your scripture promised. And I ask now, Jesus, for you to be the Lord and Savior of my life, as I hand it to you, Jesus, in your name. If you agree with that prayer, ask you to say amen. Lord, I pray that we now will be ambassadors of that wonder and that the world would see that amidst all the things that man has tried to make to make to be wondrous, only you are wonderful. And may we represent that wonderful God, magnificent, fantastic, and glorious. In Jesus' name. Amen.